Church, there we are. Good morning, church. And it's good to see you in your assigned sections. <laughs> Everything changes every week, doesn't it? Um, and good news is that 2020 only has 14,000 weeks in it, so we'll get through this together. Have a lot of work to do on the book of Revelation, so let's just jump right in. We ended last week with a lot of scriptures, a lot of scriptures. Uh, from Revelation about worship and how this is a, a book focused on worship and that worship is more than songs. It's more than the Lord's Supper and the like. What it is, in addition to all of those quite important things, it is orientation. It is where are you facing and who, in whom is your faith even in the darkness and the trials. This week... I want to begin with a lot of scriptures that talk about blessing. And that's very, very important for us to understand that the Bible clearly tells us that only God can give us his blessing. No, no state, no culture, no team, no community can truly give you the blessing. Only God can do that. We're going to read from Revelation uh, seven blessings. Seven's an important number in Revelation. You'll get more and more of that as we go along. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. Then I heard a voice from heaven say, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, said the Spirit, they will rest from their labor, for their deeds will follow them. Look. I come like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and remains clothed so as not to go naked and be shamefully exposed. Then the angel of the Lord said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, these are the true words of God. Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. Look, I'm coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy written in this scroll. Blessed are, they, are those who wash their robes that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. Seven blessings in the book of Revelation, all coming down from the Father above. And all of them tied in to reading his word and longing for access to the tree of life. As we brought up back, in the, as we looked at the book of Job, one of the greatest missed messages of all times is the story of the fall of Adam and Eve. What was so wrong with wanting to have knowledge and wisdom? What was so wrong with this? The, the devil said, you'll be like God when you can do this. And that's what was wrong with it. Did we become like God? Not in any meaningful sense, except one. We ate from the wrong tree and decided we knew how to judge others. We ate and thought, I, my standard, the... the uh, knowledge of the tree and you know, all that, that tree of knowledge and the wisdom, that all now resides in me and therefore I'm the marker and I can judge everyone else. And God says, blessed are you if you keep pointing to the tree of life. If you want to go and have eternal life, it only comes to the Lord. Where are all these blessings found 
Where is a wellspring that would send this river of blessing over us? Well, Revelation is going to show you where it's found and where it is not found. We are to, as you said, stay clothed. Uh, keep your head on a swivel. Eyes open. Live alert lives. And stay pointed in the right direction. This is going to be, I think, a very important story, this book of Revelation for us at this time in our nation's history and in the world history, because we are being promised so many things by so many people, conservative, liberal, libertarians, anarchists, whoever you've got, says basically, you, you follow us and everything will be all right. God says, don't link arms with this world. No good soldier gets entangled with the things of this world. So it gives us a story. And, and the end of time is described in here. There's no question about that. But there's no indication, no date, no millennium even. He, we're not to know. He comes like a thief. You're not going to be prepared. That's not the right word. You're not going to have prior knowledge that he's coming right then. We're, of course, we're supposed to be prepared. Yeah, when you make your living speaking... <laughs> You hope people don't clip the video and start showing it about. The lessons in the book of Revelation and the prophecies apply to every generation, every culture. Our normative state is warfare. When the, the state, and by that I mean all world governments, would try to tell you that the normative state is peace if you follow them, God says, no, it's going to be warfare but I'm going to give you a weapon. And that weapon is love. Now, that does not sound like an impressive weapon. Not, not off, you know, you, you don't think of that. And yet, as we're going to see a little bit today, that's a real weapon that makes real differences everywhere we go. The message of Revelation is clear. Do not assimilate with your culture or any earthly culture. We are to be assimilated into the culture of Jesus the Christ. We are to be his community of faith and stand apart from the idolatrous, empire-driven death culture around us. And it is a death culture with everything from the slaughter of the innocent in the womb to the violence in our street to the calls whenever we're in warfare to turn a nation into a glass parking lot with nuclear weapons. We live in a culture of death and we are told to be the community of life. And that's going to put us sideways in a big way with the culture. But we do it anyway. To make sure that the early Christians understood what was being said to them, God wrote this book in a very different way. To our ears, it is quite strange. And if I'm being honest, um, to the Jewish ears, it was strange as well, but they knew their Old Testament. And you really can't understand Revelation without understanding the Old Testament. The stories, of course, but books such as Isaiah, Daniel, Ezekiel, Zechariah, uh, all of these are going to be referenced and sometimes not quoted, but rather an idea will be brought in, uh, almost shorthand, and people would say the Jews understood what it was. All of this language and the numbers and the like come from that people, 
the chosen people of God throughout the Old Testament, and now, of course, all believers are chosen. So, what's in the book? Real quick, seven, we saw seven blessings. There are also seven major themes, and I want you just to look for them as we go through. One, the throne. God is God. There is no other. We are first commandment Christians. Do you remember that from last week? That's who we are. There is no God but God. Second, the reality of evil and empire. Evil is real. I, I have been in conversations with people who were very well educated who tell me, no, evil is just a concept. Evil is just an idea. No, evil is real. And it ends in blood, division, and death. We are not to link our arms with evil or empire. Governments make unholy alliances. We do not. Third, the temptation to idolatry and immorality. We are natural-born idolaters. We, I'm in the room, are natural-born idolaters. We tend to find a word, an idea, a person, um, a culture, whatever it is, and lock in there. God says, keep your eyes open, point toward Jesus. The, by the way, um, the reason that we, we idolize them is because they declare the only way for you to have meaning and worth is if you follow them. They're false messiahs indeed. Fourth, call for faithfulness. I, I, even in the midst of all of this, Christians were the best citizens Rome could have ever wanted. Christians don't rebel and don't do the stuff that other people do. They're not going to join the barbarian hordes. No. They paid their taxes. They obeyed. They would not break their oath to God and make an oath to Caesar. But they were the best of citizens. By the way, Constantine, that was his genius. He finally noticed it. You want more of these people, not less. And there, by the way, there have been other empires that have looked about and said, you know something, we need to make them the official one because they're better. We, that's all right. Let's just make sure that once they say, you know, you guys are good, we don't then link arms with them. But instead we say, we are focused on Jesus. What's the best thing I can do for you right now? We live as a community of Christ. Uh, then a fifth, worship driven by our vision because we see what the world does not we worship what they do not because we see what the world does not we worship what they see not and they don't understand it they will never understand it unless we share our vision with them and tell the story. And they will probably not listen to our story until they hear and see the witness. And that's the next theme. Yes, the word witness and martyr are the same word in that period of time when this was written. I don't think that door knocking and street preaching are very effective anymore. They used to be because you had very little entertainment. Anybody here under the age of 30 will never be able to grasp how exciting it was when a phone rang. People rushed. They threw each other out of the way to get to it. And when somebody knocked at the door 
it was like DEFCON 4. We, we go all the way to, you know, let's go, let's go, let's go see who's there. And, and dads and moms know back then the expression, st- stop, not everybody. But everybody saw it. It was different. So you could knock on the door and talk about Jesus. Or you could call, but today we have to live Jesus. And that's the attraction. We have to be a living, not passive, active people of love and grace and justice and sacrifice and mercy. Then the last theme, judgment and salvation. We as a people declare to the world that we believe that God will judge each individual. Not us, not an empire or a culture. God does that. And that salvation is found in Christ. And as a song we just sang said, we believe it is found in Christ alone. As we read Revelation, then it's important that we take our eyes off ourselves. Take our eyes off our surroundings for a while. It's important we take our eyes off of our politics and our culture and put them where they belong. And that's on Jesus. Focus on the Lord of Lords, King of Kings, the Lion of Judah, and the slaughtered lamb. Every time you think God's building up to something, kaboom, he pulls a switch on you. And in this book, it is rampant, that switch pulling. You're going to see here in just a few weeks, uh, Dean English is going to, uh, Dean English, Dean English is a Scottish friend of mine. Sorry there, Dean Barham. Dean Barham will be um, uh, teaching and preaching, and he gets to walk us into the throne room. I told him, I'm so glad you're preaching, and I'm so jealous, because that's one of the most exciting things. When you finally get into the throne room of God, and you look up, and all the living angels and uh, living creatures, the angels, they're all just exploding with joy, and you look, and on the throne is a slaughtered lamb. That's almost as silly as invading the earth in the form of a baby. It's almost as silly as saying, all right, Fourth Avenue, here's the deal. The world around you is a death culture. It is full of evil. It is full of thrown away, and people who throw others away in the light. But you, I got a weapon for you, love. It's not the one we would have chosen, but it's the one we've got. I like that about God, actually. I like a lot about God, because I'm Christian. You're kind of required to like a lot about God, and I do anyway. But there are some things that really endear God to me, and this switching out, catching you by surprise, and making you go, huh, I, I love that. Remember also, as we look at this book, we're about to get into it, I promise. It was written by a first-century Christian for first-century Christians, And it used literary devices and images that they would have understood. Absolutely, as we go through here, we can apply a lot of this to the current situation because we're supposed to. It's a book which is supposed to be valid in every generation. God has written other books like that. Might want to read the book of Isaiah. I dare you to read Isaiah without stopping every now and then and thinking, was he watching our news? Was he reading our papers? And Isaiah will live forever because every culture needs Isaiah. As we look, and by the way, when I say literary devices and such, think about this. Let's think about somebody from 
a hundred years ago. And they're transported to our current time. The first of all, they'd scream and run around a lot. We get this. But then a lot of our expressions would mean nothing to them. Such as, oh, I just ran a red light. What does that mean? It's little things that we don't... And today, remember cell phones... Uh, not cell phones, but the iPhone didn't show up till 2007, I think. And so now everything's wrapped around that, right? And so we'll say, oh, I saw something interesting. I pulled out my phone and took a picture. That somebody from 30 years ago be going, what? So whenever we read this, we may have to go and define some things we read in their culture, what those words meant for them. Fair enough, the opening passage is exactly like passages of Greek plays. You have to see, first of all, who is pulling the strings behind the curtain. They didn't have curtains, just work with me. Uh, they would bring them on to explain what's really going on, then shove them off. Well, Revelation 1. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And by the way, yes, write down Daniel. We're not going to read it today, but it, it, it just really links in there. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man. That reminds me so much of Ezekiel, Ezekiel 1. How many times he goes, was like, it seemed, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow. And his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and now, look, I'm alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. I just got chills again. I've been reading this stuff for all my entire life, but if you read it and you think about it, you're going to get chills. Every message that will be delivered in this book is like a play, the way it rolls out, but it it's like a play because plays mimicked or took their form from the way the government rolled out edicts with trumpets, with lights. It's going to, you know, this, they're going to roll them out like imperial edicts, but we don't really get that because we don't get imperial edicts. They did. These seven cities were the beating heart of the Roman Empire, they were the center. Rome was not, not by this time. If you study the history of the Roman Empire, it's amazing how often Rome was not the center of things. These churches were right there, and they're about to hear from a real God, a real Lord, the true King. They know all about scrolls and seals and trumpets, but they're going to meet somebody else now. Let's look, Revelation 2, 1 through 7, Ephesus. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars. That was just a couple verses ago. Uh, in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. 
I, I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you've tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name, hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet I, I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. And you have this, but you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That's all of us. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life. The necessary corrective at this time for all of us, which is in the paradise of God. Wow. All right, some context. Ephesus was a, a city of about a quarter of a million people. Massive for the day. Temples were all over the city. This is, um, this is Ephesus. The two biggest temples, and then a bunch of the minor temples, but the two biggest temples, one was to Artemis, also known as, um, as Diana, the goddess of the hunt, fertility, childbirth, and more. That's important to remember that what she's linked to. And then, of course, the emperor. Whatever the emperor was, whomever the emperor was, there, there were temples to him, and you were expected to go there. If you've ever been up to the, the Parthenon in Nashville, which was quite a surprise when I first saw it, I was going, oh, overshot my exit. Here I am, uh, and you walk in, and there is a huge idol there. That is not Diana. I heard somebody ask that recently. Uh, that's Athena, and it is supposed to be an exact replica of what stood in the Parthenon back then. Moving on. So far, the Ephesian church hadn't compromised with evil or with its, um, its, its empire com uh, power in the time. But there was something deadly going on in Ephesus. Now I want you to think, I know your deeds, that you're working hard, you're not giving up. Those are the kind of words you want to hear from God about 4th Avenue. But all those deeds, check 1 Corinthians 13, weren't adding up to anything because they'd lost their love. How many churches pour money and time and into all kinds of activities, and yet they're not really making an impact on their community because love is not being elevated where love needs to be. God is love. You, they will know you are my disciples by your love. Paul says in, Ephesus, in the Ephesian book, that the only thing that matters is faith expressing itself in love. And we just keep going here. Love is our greatest power. Love is our energy. Love should be on our t-shirts and tattooed on our hearts. It's not literal kids. Hearts, not chest. It should be everywhere and in everything we say and do. By the way, everybody wants to know about what the, the Nicolaitans were up to. Somewhat of a mystery. There are some writings that say this is what they taught, but they're not, they weren't contemporaneous. They, 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 the writers were writing well after this event. 
it's probable that the book of Jude, that little short book, was written against them. Our best guess is, is that they would, what theologians would call antinomian, which means we believe we are not now subject to law. Now that would be state law as well as the Old Testament laws. Since they felt Christ had come, they did not feel bound by those laws about do not commit adultery. That was really the main driver here. Uh, do not steal. Or lie. They felt free from all of that. And therefore, they became a people without law. They believed that those laws about sex and other pleasures didn't apply to them. And Ephesus was the right place to find things like this because it was a sex-saturated society. Remember, Diana, Artemis, is goddess of things like childbirth and fertility. And therefore, sex was a big part of this. They commingled, they blended sex and religion. And the Nicolaitans, it seems, might have joined in. So, he says, we, we need those out of there. We need to talk a little bit about that. Because that's, that's interesting. Because God's never asked us to divide from each other over doctrine. Or over personality. Or, can you fill in the blanks from here? Um, if there's a dead horse, I'll find it and beat it. So I don't want to say too much. You know, and bore you to tears. But there are matters that are so important to God that require a special calling out. And if no change is made, a distance. There are three that I can find in Scripture. One is a persistent sexual sin for which there is no repentance. Uh, think about the man who married his own mother in 1 Corinthians. They were proud of it. He continued going on. And, there's, and God says, no, he's got to be removed. Got to get out of the congregation. Another is if they deny that Jesus is the Christ. Okay, we can see how that would cause a problem. And then the third is the more interesting one to me because it's the most often named. The divisive person. There, you know what the word for a divisive person was? heretic. It wasn't heresy to not know how to set up elders or set, do the Lord's Supper. It wasn't heresy to figure out what songs to sing or not. It was heresy to divide over anything that God didn't call you to divide from. Divide over. I will go check my prepositions later. We need to be very careful though that we do not take these few instances where God says to divide and blow them up into many more. We don't have the license to declare our bit of favorite doctrine to be the one we can divide over. God is very particular in what he says. And he's very particular in what he does not say. Sexual sin can absolutely be forgiven and thank God for that. But when we live as if there were no law, we have become outlaws. The rule of God is for us to focus on Jesus and love. Now, how's that going to help? In short, and it needs to be in short at this time, doesn't it? If I love you, I'm not going to take your stuff. If I love you, I will not hurt you, much less murder you. If I love you, I will not slander against you. If I love you, I will never treat you as a non-person 
or as an enemy. If I love you, I will never use you sexually for my benefit. Or for yours, I guess. I don't know how that would work, but I'm not going to break up a marriage. I'm not going to break my wife's heart by breaking a vow. If I love people, you see how it affects every... If you love people, you're going to let a few of them out in the street when they've been waiting for a while to merge. If you love people, you're not going to do the middle finger and the, the loud horn. And If you love people, it, it changes everything. Absolutely everything. You get out of your, your car at, um, at Kroger and you look and there's a wild roaming cart that nobody put away. There's the corral. I'm not sure who named it the corral, but I really like that. 12 feet away and you're going... Love doesn't do that. Love takes the cart. I don't know how many times I've been taking a few carts and somebody bring me another one. I'm going, okay. I work here now. In fact, I am one of the, I'm, I'm a checkout person because now you have to be. You know, so you don't just go to Walmart, you work there now. So that's, you know, that's, I started greeting people and thanking them for coming. The point is, the point is, that's not on the notes if you're struggling up there, Laurie. Um, Ephesus needed to remember to love people. They'd forgotten to love people. And I guarantee you that every one of them was going, well, we love people because we're not actively harming them. No, loving people means we draw alongside. We help them in their weaknesses. We don't judge them. We move them forward. Love is the power that Ephesus had laid aside. And it's our only weapon. If you want to see and live with the God who calls himself love, you're going to need to be practicing it here. Now, just as a reminder and a cautionary note, let's remember the kind of people we should be when we are waiting for Jesus to return. And I decided to take these verses in closing, not from Revelation this time, but from two of the earliest books written in the New Testament, First and Second Thessalonians. At that time, you know, Paul was, he was writing as if Jesus could be back in any minute. That's a really good way to live, no matter what century you're born in. But the Thessalonians had gotten so, oh, he's coming back any minute, they'd stopped working. And he has to get them working again. So the last sections of both of these books are lists to remind us how to live until Jesus returns. So if you would stand with me as we read from the word of the Lord. 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 through 24. Now we acknowledge you, brothers and sisters, we ask you, brothers and sisters, to acknowledge those who work hard among you, who care for you in the Lord, and who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard and love because of their work. Live in peace with each other. And we urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle and disruptive. Encourage the disheartened. Help the weak. Be patient with everyone. Make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. Rejoice always. 
Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not quench the spirit. Do not treat prophecies with contempt. But test them all. Hold on to what is good. Reject every kind of evil. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. And then, 2 Thessalonians. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we command you, brothers and sisters, to keep away from every believer who is idle and disruptive and does not live according to the teaching you received from us. We hear that some among you are idle and disruptive. They're not busy. They are busy bodies. Such people we command and urge in the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and earn the food they eat. As for you, brothers and sisters, never tire of doing what is good. Take special note of anyone who does not obey our instruction in this letter. Do not associate with them in order that they may feel ashamed. Yet do not regard them as an enemy, but warn them as you would a fellow believer. Love doesn't mean we have no law. Love is our law, and that changes everything as we witness for God and wait for the Lord.